At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. And would like to remind you that the Premier League is very much a marathon and not a sprint. I'm Kevin Day, he's Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire, uh, and unfortunately, Kieran, I don't think we're going to be very good at the marathon either. Um, uh, although we lost 4-0 at, at Chelsea last season and 3-0 yesterday, so by my maths, that's a 25% improvement, is that right? That's very good. You've, you've been uh, following following the numbers in the beautiful uh, game, Kevin, clearly. Yes, yeah, clearly. I, I, osmosis is working wonders in my <laughs> uh, And I'm on about to mention that you won yesterday. Well done. Cracking. Well done. Everyone's Thank you. Well, it, it, was, it, was, it was good to be back. Uh, and also, just you know, some of that that terrorist nonsense that we get. So, when when a when a small but noticeable section of the Burnley fan base decided to boo the players taking the knee, uh, we responded by singing Marcus Rashford, he's feeding your kids uh, to the Burnley fans. Uh, so, <laughs> you, 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 that that's what we love about the game. Ah, uh, Oscar, I've missed this level of banter. <laughs> it's. Uh... It's only funny at a football ground. If you did that in a pub, people would just look at you bizarrely, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes. It's it's questions day, Kieran, but the, the questions are sulking somewhat because they have to share today, like good little questions, because coming up we'll be hearing from cryptocurrency expert Gavin Brown about fan tokens, and we have a couple of news stories. And before that even, we have me saying to you, what are fan tokens? As we've been having a lot of questions, Leeds are just the latest club um, to join in with this science fiction money that not all of us understand. What what are they, Kieran? What's happened to cash? Why can't I just give somebody a fiver for a pie? Well, the thing is, Kevin, if you give somebody fiver for a pie, you, you get the pie straight away. The thing about these fan tokens is, is you give the money to the club up front and you get your pie over the course of the next 12 months. And if you don't spend your, your money, you, you don't get your pie. Um, it, it's a bit like if, if I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Disneyland where you can exchange your dollars for Mickey Mouse dollars, li- literally Mickey Mouse dollars. Um, and they're worth exactly the same as a regular dollar. But you, if, if at the end of the day you've not spent all of them, you, you can't exchange them back for real currency. That, well, that's cleared that up, Kieran. It's, <laughs> frankly, it's, it's hard enough exchanging cash for pies at Solos Park without introducing money that doesn't exist. Um, Let's do these first news stories, Kieran. The, the the first one's a big one. The second one I, I want to talk about, but I don't want to be too self-indulgent because it's about uh, potentially the greatest football club in the league, just not quite at the moment. Um, you told us last week, Kieran, why uh, Lionel Messi had to leave Barcelona, the complicated set of financial rules that made that happen. But a lot of people are wondering why PSG, wealthy as they are, are able to afford to bring him in. Well, um, you know, as we've discussed on a few occasions, when a club is looking to recruit a player, they look at the total cost over the life of the contract. And that total cost is the, the transfer fee 
and the wages. Now, from PSG's perspective, they are getting Lionel Messi on a free transfer, whereas a year ago, he had a buyout clause, which was, I think, something like 700 million euros. So from their point of view, they're they're getting a bargain. Uh, I I guess what people are querying is whether or not that they can... uh, pay his wages, which are substantial, but still substantially also lower than those of Neymar. Uh, they can pay those wages uh, as well as, uh, you know, they've, they've recruited Wijnaldum, Ramos, uh, Hakimi, Pereira. So, and they, they spent a wee bit in the transfer market, but most of those have been free transfers uh, and stay within financial fair play. And this is sort of the sniping that's been made. What they say is that a, a combination of... Uh, new commercial deals or enhanced commercial deals, because let's face it, if you've got a choice of your product along alongside Angel de Maria or Leo Messi, everybody wants Messi. So they can charge extra to their commercial partners. They can also charge uh, more money for hospitality boxes when ma- matches are taking place at Parc de Prince. Um, and yes, they will make some money on merchandise, but but far less. I, I think uh, Piers Morgan was claiming that uh, the, the shirt sales would uh, would cover the, his wages, and, and unfortunately, I, I don't think Piers is particularly well informed in relation to that. Um, but so so they've got extra money coming in. Um, they they probably do need to shift a couple of players off the wage bill and and get some money from transfer revenue as well. But they've still got a fortnight to do that as far as the, the transfer market is concerned. Yeah, I, I was hoping you'd talk about corporate hospitality because I was hoping you'd talk about the Prawn Sandwich Brigade because I Google translated what Prawn Sandwich Brigade is in French. But it doesn't sound quite so good when it's... Uh, not ex- <laughs> when I'm not extemporizing. When I've told you that I looked it up in the hope that you would say prawn sandwich, bread. <laughs> just just in case it's La Brigade Sandwich au Crevette. There you go. That that sounds quite enticing, though, doesn't it? It, it, it actually a sandwich au Crevette does sound better than a prawn sandwich, although I'd pronounce it crevette then, and a cravat sandwich is not very good. Um, though though mo- most things, surely in French, sound far more seductive than they do in English. It depends if it's a South London accent, basically. <laughs> uh, bonjour, love, doesn't sound that brilliant, does it? Well, love, bonjour. Uh, we had several tweets, Kieran, suggesting that this perhaps could rejuvenate the French TV deal. Is, is that possible? Um, possible, yes. I, I believe that Amazon Prime have now signed up with with uh, Ligue 1, or ooh, uh, to... See, uh, not, not everything sounds better in French when we say it, I told you. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I think some form of uh, additional revenues will come in. I don't think that they will be sizable, though, and the reason for that is that the, the TV deals for the forthcoming season... Um, you know, some some of them are some of the deals that have been signed by uh, the, the French football authorities last two or three years anyway. So you, you can't increase or decrease those. So we're in the middle of those. Um, and the ones for this season, I, I think the the broadcasters have probably extracted maximum uh, maximum from the the French football people because they, they they know that French football was in a pretty desperate place uh, only a few months ago. Hmm. All I'm saying, Kieran, is if the, a beautiful young person was offered the choice of David Ginlar quoting Baudelaire and me or you quoting Baudelaire, <laughs> I'm pretty certain they would go for David Ginlar. Uh, somebody else I once inadvertently infuriated. Um, oh, really? Yes. 
by um, we were on a TV show together, and he just opened his first vineyard. And he was specialising in in rosé wine, which it turns out is a very technical process. So he didn't particularly appreciate it when I suggested that it must be quite difficult getting the right amount of red and white in the vat. <laughs> <laughs> We, we well, I, I can assure you that I can assure you the Baroness uh, w- would listen to every word that he said and just nod, well, nod away. Well, that's pretty. I tried to get angry with him, Kieran, when he was getting, but I couldn't get angry with that voice. Simple as that. I, <laughs> I told him that, but he was still gesticulating. To be perfectly honest, um, <laughs> our next story, Kieran, which is the one I don't want to be too self-indulgent about, but I am slightly concerned, is that U.S. businessman John Textor has invested a lot of money into Crystal Palace this week. And my concern is that when we mentioned him a while back as a potential buyer for the club, you were a bit dubious because of the, you didn't think he was wealthy enough to buy the whole club and there were some issues with his with his financial background in the States. Should should Palace fans be worried about this? I, I, I don't think they should be worried. I mean, I mean, certainly John Textor has had ups and downs in terms of his... Uh, business activities historically, but then you know, many other people have had successes and failure. You've only got to look at Apple. Uh, you know that, that that was a company which almost went bust, um, and, and now it's it, it's worth uh, around about two point four trillion dollars. So uh, you know uh, companies can 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 come back from the brink. Um, so in, in terms of John Textor, um, we've seen the announcement from Palace, and I'm I, I was just left wanting more information um i understand that he's put in 87.5 million pounds now is that money going to the club or is it going to existing shareholders that's that's not quite clear um nothing's appeared at company's house although uh you know historically palace have never been the quickest to to update their, their records there um how do the, all of the existing uh, owners feel about this because if he's buying uh, you know, for eighty-seven point five million, I estimate Palace to be worth somewhere between two hundred and two hundred and twenty million. So it looks as if he's buying somewhere between forty to forty-five percent, which means that some of the other shareholders, their their investment has been diluted. So, you know, where where does it leave them? Um, so yeah, those those questions are still outstanding, and and I think it would just I think it would be useful if, if Palace just came out and and settled uh, the, the uncertainty there. Um, but it does look as if uh, one of the first things that's happened is that he uh, he's in, he's in charge of a um, a mixed reality company called mm. Facebank. Now, for, for, you know, I think mixed reality is it, it's a bit like beer goggles. You know, what you see is not is not necessarily what you get. Um, who have become Palace's sleeve sponsor, um, speaking to some uh, other people uh, involved in, in Premier League sleeve sponsorship. You know, that's, that's likely to be a seven-figure deal. Is that part of his investment? Is that independent of his investment uh, in Palace? Uh, you know, th- these, these are the, the things which are sort of just muff- a bit muffled at present. Uh, and I think we could probably all benefit from a wee bit of clarity. Mm. Time was, Kieran, many years ago when my face was my bank. <laughs> so I was a face bank. That was the money maker. Um, it, the local press, certainly in London, are, are calling him a co-owner and saying that the money will be used on infrastructure. So presumably, going towards the new stand, the fabled new stand. Does does an investment of this amount of money automatically make him a co co-owner, or is there a difference between an investor and an owner? 
Well, it, it depends on how the money is uh, given to the recipient. Uh, it could be in the form of a loan, or it could be in the form of uh, a share ownership. If, if it's if it's shares, if it's equity, then then he is certainly a co-owner, given the extent of the investment. Um, which, as I say, you know, I, I think it's we're probably talking around about uh, you know forty to. 40, 49%. The fact that he's mm. not a, uh, in control, and that appeared to come through from the uh, from the press release, suggests that it's it's below 51%, which which is normally a, quite a big threshold in terms of the business. You know, where does this leave Steve Parrish? You know, presumably, Steve's still going to be the chief executive. Um, you know, it, there, there's a lot of there's just a lot of uncertainty, but uh, you you can certainly become uh, a co-owner. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I I own shares in in one or two football clubs who mm. are who are traded on stock markets purely because it, it allows me to get access to information on them a wee bit earlier on occasion. So that you know, in theory, I'm a co-owner, but in practice, you know, me owning ten shares in a particular club doesn't 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 tend to move the dial very much. Whereas his investment is significant. Mm. Uh, John Texter originally made his money in holograms, um, seven of whom seem to be on the pitch at Stamford Bridge yesterday. So they're obviously they're obviously Arsh. very good. Harsh. Um, let's let's move on to questions, Kieran, because I know people from the club listen to this pod. Uh, I might turn my phone off in the morning. Um, <laughs> our, our first question comes from Stephen Hussey. Uh, it probably isn't related to my old friend Bernadette Hussey. But Stephen says, how far down the football pyramid do boot deals extend? For example, when I see yet another promising teenage product from the academy of my beloved Exeter City, and that's City, Kieran, uh, step on the pitch. Uh, are they doing so in, in sponsored boots or are these perch boots purchased by their mum and dad? Um, I, I contacted our, our very good friend and agent, uh, Jonathan Booker, with regard mm. to this because he, he has uh, he, he's represented players uh, across all divisions. And he said in his experience um, that the sponsorship deals coming from the the major manufacturers, you know, the like the likes of Nike, Adidas, and Puma, would normally be for players in the in the Premier League and the Championship. Um, but uh, what sometimes happens is that uh, the the agent effectively becomes the the boot sponsor, i.e., the player says, "I will sign for you." if you guarantee me six pairs of boots a season. Um, now, whether the agent goes out and buys them or sometimes what you will find is that uh, an agent might represent four or five players at an individual club. He will then go to the the manufacturer and either A, try to cut a deal or B, say, yeah, one of these players is currently being watched by Chelsea or Manchester United. Uh, you know, if, if I get, if, if you give him a contract, Will you give free boots to the other lads, and and you just pay the one of them? So there's there's lots of complexity here, but it, it is mainly um, Premier League and Championship. Uh, some of the smaller boot manufacturers, the less well known brands, are willing to sponsor players with boots in the lower leagues, but the players themselves are normally quite keen on having the big name brands because you know that they are. That they, they they see them being worn in the Premier League. Um, we also contacted um, a manager of a club uh, in, in one of the in one of the lower leagues, and he said this this is quite common. And in fact, that he said he was 
absolutely amazed that that players were that naive mm. that they would choose to go to agent A instead of agent B simply on the back of half a dozen sets of boots a season, you know, surely you should be looking at the the much broader issue of, of the representation from the agent. But but people can be bought with baubles. You know, that's why we see those adverts on, on daytime TV, sign up for a life of, uh, you know, a, li- a life of an insurance product or a financial product for the next 10 or 25 years. And, and we'll send you a, a £25 Amazon voucher as, as a signing on and, and people fall for it. Yeah, I, I like the advert where you can get cremated on a beach and they offer you a pen for signing up. You kind of think, well, that, <laughs> how long are you expecting this deal to last for? Um, it, it's very interesting. I, I've been at um, Premier League training grounds on a Monday morning when the, the week's delivery of new boots arrives for the players. and it's, Basically, it's backing up a forklift truck with hundreds of boots that just get thrown at players. They pick a couple of boots to, to wear that week. And then God knows where the rest go. It's it's an interesting one. I might ask my friend Selzy, who's um, a goalkeeping glove manufacturer, about this to see whether it's a similar deal for him. Because I know he, I know he deals from the Premier League downwards, but um, it, it will have to be an email interview because Palace fans will know that Selzy can talk <laughs> a lot. And and Selzy's from South London, and he'll call you babe, and he will undoubtedly know Uncle Terry or somebody that nicked him. Um, so, yeah, but that's an interesting one, isn't it, How yeah, That's yeah. that idea that an agent might be able to entice somebody with boots. Uh, our next question comes from Ed Layton. And Ed says, my 2021 New Year's resolution was to win a lottery jackpot. Nothing tells you, <laughs> nothing tells you, Kieran, that we have a backlog of questions more than answering a New Year's one in August. Um, yes. <laughs> thank God it was 2021. Um, Ed says he's had no luck so far winning that lottery, but there's plenty of time left this year. Not anymore, Ed. You've got, <laughs> you've got far fewer months left than you had when you asked this question. Uh, but Ed says, how much would I need to win to buy and run a football club from the Premier League down to, say, Conference North? Lottery winners, for example, bought Newport County and Partick Thistle. So I thought I would get some free consultancy advice from you before my big windfall. Now, Ed, I have to say, I'm not picking on you here, Ed, because other people are trying to do it. Can we just have some questions rather than trying to get free advice out of Kieran from this? They said, Kieran's a professional. He charges by the hour. Eye-waterings. Not guy, not guy guilty sums of money, but Kieran charges <laughs> by the hour. You can't even collar Kieran. With me, you can collar me in a pub and, and you'll get me to Kieran doesn't drink, so stop trying to sneak questions in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you rascals. But it's, a, it's an interesting point. I, I would love to know how much it would take me to buy Palace and just to get the claret and blue kit back, and then I'd sell it again. But it's uh, what sort of figures are we looking at here, Kieran? Well, um, in terms of – there's two issues. There's A, the, the purchase price of a club, and then there's B, is the underwriting, the, the running losses. So you can buy a football club for a pound. You know, Steve Dale uh, yeah, bought course, Berry yeah. Football Club for a pound, yeah. but it had ongoing uh, ongoing – uh, financial commitments, um, of course, which Steve Dale, uh, being a Roman, uh, didn't commit himself to to paying any, and, and I think mm. we can say that without fear of uh, any uh, any retribution from Mr. Dale, given given what happened to to Berry Football Club subsequently. Um, so, if, if the club is is losing substantial sums of money, you can buy it for nothing or next to nothing. Um, if, if the club is run reasonably well, so so here, um, you know, perhaps we're looking at a club such as Rochdale, and Rochdale is currently subject to uh, 
um, an offer which appears to value the club at around about £5 million. But that's that's a very hostile, uh, ongoing takeover. And, and I think we will make efforts to get somebody from, from the Rochdale Trust onto the show yep, yep. shortly to, to explain their position. Um, but um, I, I went and did my... I went and did my sums, and then I think if you, you know, Derby are presently for sale at uh, you know, fifty million. I think you, if you went to Uncle Mel, he'd, he'd probably take your hand off for that. Uh, yeah, we, we've, we've already said Palace. I reckon somewhere in the region of two hundred to two twenty, and then if you are looking at Liverpool or Chelsea, I think you can add a zero to that. You know, they're, they're somewhere wow. in the wow. two to yeah. two and a half billion. So, so that those are the those are the broad sums involved. Um, but it's the losses which are which are my concern. So, if you were running a club in League Two, um, you'd have to be able to be in a position to write out, on average, a cheque for thirteen thousand pounds a week to keep the club afloat. Mm. Uh, if you go as far as League One, that thirteen thousand uh, more than doubles to, to thirty thousand pounds a week. And then if you go up to the championship, your lottery winnings aren't going to last you very long. The average there, £356,000 per week after taking into account player sales and parachute payments and everything else that uh, they, they mysteriously uh, managed to generate from you know, selling the stadium to themselves and the, the strange taxi deals and all the nonsense. Uh, yeah, but they're still losing a, a huge six-figure sum per week. And, and that's clearly an issue which is, uh, it's, it's been long-term. So um, yeah, I'd say to Ed, it would have to be a, a Euro Millions mega rollover before I'd give serious consideration to to buying a football club. But personally, I'd, I'd just go and... I I just go and sponsor the third kit and change it to to the colour that you wanted, and and that would be a lot cheaper. You'd go to Moscow. That's what you do, Kieran. We all know that. Um, that that figure that's a huge from League One to Championship. That's a huge, huge leap in weekly uh, payout, isn't it? it? It is. I mean, and and also I think we need to. You know, I'm, I'm saying that this is sort of the, the average. We have seen clubs come up to the, the championship from League One, the likes of Rochdale, which have always been really well run, the likes of Luton as well, um, who who are running on a much closer to break-even model than that um, at the same time. Um, why are those losses so big? It's because people's eyes are bigger than their face and and they see the riches of the Premier League. Um, and, they, and they, you know, I've said this before, they effectively twist on 19. They think mm. that by spending more money on player recruitment, player wages, um, that will give them that just additional nudge that's required to get to the Premier League where they'll probably make a profit for the first year and then start to make losses. Yeah, this is going to sound rather hypocritical after me telling Ed off for asking for free advice. But if any of our silver-tongued friends are listening to this and they could give us, for nothing, a legal definition of a wrong and that would be great. That would save Guy, <laughs> that would save Guy a, lot of, a lot of heartache every week when we call somebody a wrong But We have the inevitable email exchange and he says, can you stop calling people wrong When well, they are wrong why can't we legally call them? Legally, they have to prove they're not wrong but Guy reckons that's not the case. But maybe if somebody could tell us that, that'd be lovely. Now, our next question comes from Ian McLaughlin, which was, uh, God rest of my mother's maiden name. Um, it's not likely that we're related, but Kieran, you will know more than anybody that in any large... Irish family. 
there's always a branch that you don't find out about oh, until, absolutely. until somebody dies, <laughs> makes a deathbed confession, and then you think, oh, that's where the money went. All right, okay. Uh, so in, in the unlikely event that you are related, hello, cousin Ian. Uh, Ian McLaughlin's question is about Huddersfield and their sponsorship deal, which still, even now, that Paddy Power uh, stunt that they pulled off resonates with our listeners. Because Ian says after the Paddy Power um, deal, Huddersfield went down a new route by having a different sponsor for each home game and a charity on their shirt for away games. Is this more commercially rewarding than a conventional sponsorship or are they simply making the best of not being able to attract a single larger sponsor? Um, I think it's it's a gamble. It's a gamble that could turn into a positive. So if Huddersfield Town, for example, had a very good FA Cup run and they ended up hosting Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, etc., then uh, I think, think they could make additional funds from it. Um, equally, uh, if, if you are the commercial department and uh, they've, got, uh, they've got Reading on a Tuesday night, uh, you know who's going to be willing to pay a large sum of money for the privilege of of sponsoring the shirts for that match? So, um, what what you get with a single sponsor is you get certainty, um, and, and certainty uh, means that you can budget with a little bit more uh, degree of confidence. If uh, if you're doing it on a match by match basis, and uh, that that means that you know at the start of the season, the chances are you've got you know potentially say you know ten to fifteen uh, free slots for later in the season. You will have a figure in mind which you might be able to generate, but it could be that circumstances dictate you know. We've had COVID. It could be that Huddersfield are having a poor season. That actually, there's there's relatively little interest. So uh, I think it will be a challenge. Uh, but you, you you do have the benefit of you know, potential tiered prices when you've got some some big local clubs, especially coming to to Huddersfield. Um, for what intrigues me is is the the potential impact on on merchandise sales. You know, would fans be more or less inclined to buy the home shirt if they say, well, effectively, if we buy it with the, the first sponsor of the season, um, it's out of date in a fortnight. Whereas mm. yeah, we, we've now got into this this, this psyche. And, and this is something I, I, I think really has sort of snuck on under the radar. The clubs are changing at least two kits and quite often three now every season. It wasn't that long ago mm. that kits lasted two seasons, mm. which yeah, I thought was you know, reasonable. Um, but Huddersfield's effectively could last a fortnight unless you're getting the away kit, which presumably, and if, they, if, it, if it's connected to a charity, well, you know, my, my hat is doffed uh, in, in, in Huddersfield's direction. Mm. It, I found it interesting. We're recording this on Sunday night. I found it interesting watching the the Newcastle-West Ham game, just how many Newcastle fans had the new kit on, which is, you know, again, it's like Palace. There's only so many things you can do with stripes. But despite their their beef with Mike Ashley and despite their dissatisfaction at last season, still, I would guess, a good 40% of them still willing to shell out the money to buy the new shirt. And that's probably replicated at every club in the country, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, we, we, we do see... Uh, a, b- a boom in sales in legacy shirts or whatever people want to call them these days, but um, there, there is there, you, you do feel that slight degree of extra affinity again if you've got the financial resources and you know, mm. if if you're into football shirts sort of buying this season's because uh, again in in no other way in no other industry that I'm, I'm I'm familiar with you feel that 
you are helping the club, and mm. it's the club that you love, not Mike Ashley, yeah. um, not the Glazers, not John Henry. It's because you, you know, you, you were born a Geordie. You were born with St James's Park as part of your uh, upbringing, um, and and it's you know, and whatever beef you've got with Mike Ashley, you still want to see Newcastle do well in the Premier League this season. So it's 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 a it's a real it's a real challenge, I think, for some fans. Um, but you know, when I go to Sainsbury's, I don't say oh, I'm going to go and buy an extra packet of biscuits this this week because uh, yeah, I want to help Sainsbury's uh, Sainsbury's finances. But but we do do that in terms of football clubs. Yeah, or you can go to Tesco's and get a new carrier bag, which is a lot cheaper than a Brighton kit. I'll just let that sink in. I knew you'd get it eventually, Kieran. Um, Dave Bloom says uh, very simply. Is it possible to give us a history of the finances behind VAR and who receives the money for it? Right. Um, VIR was developed uh, by a company called Hawkeye. Hmm. Um, I, th- I think we originally associate Hawkeye with tennis. Yep. Um, and they have patented the, uh, the technology involved so that they will receive a fee. Now, in terms of costs per match... Um, I went into the uh, I went into company's house and I looked at both the accounts of the Football Association Premier League Limited and the Professional Game Match Officials Limited uh, accounts this morning just to see if I could find out anything uh, specific in relation to this and, and I couldn't. But uh, I did some further digging round and uh, if you are in an FA Cup match, which is governed by VAR, and, and that tends to be just for when clubs are playing at Premier League grounds, uh, when the Premier League club is the home team, it works out as £9,250 per match. So if you extend that over all 380 uh, Premier League games, it works out as a total cost of just over £3.5 million, which is paid to um, both are presumably the the match the additional match officials who are at Stockley Park, mm. um, and also for the people providing the technology. So that's that that appears to be the the broad cost. Could be a wee bit higher if if the FA are, are doing it at a discount, but I, I can't see them uh, doing that myself. Mm. This is a question, Kieran. I think a lot of the referees and uh, lines people, assistant referees. Um, who listen to this pod will probably be able to answer. Um, and I know some of them listen anonymously. They don't listen anonymously. They know who they are, but they don't tell us who they are. Uh, but Lee Mason became the first full-time VAR official this weekend, essentially. I'm wondering whether he'll still get paid as much as the referees who run the actual pitch, because certainly he won't have to be as fit as other referees. I, I, I just occurred to me to ask that question. So I will put that out there to people to see if we can find out, purely out of pure interest, because I'll never be fit enough to to run around refereeing a game. But I've you know, still probably got a couple of years that I can blag my way into Stockley Park, put a <laughs> green tracksuit on, <laughs> relegate Brighton with a broad line. Um, well, it looks like somebody tried it on yesterday. I, th- I thought it was you yes, in the box. It's, um, it's strange. It's been... Um, I like this idea of a broader line in which people still look a yard offside, but somewhere aren't anymore. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Well, it all, it all went a bit pear-shaped with the West Ham penalty today, but that's 
you know, that's something for Graham Souness to get worried about. I'm not that fast. Michael Hartley has a question about transfers, especially transfers with an option to buy back. Who, says Michael, does this benefit more, the selling club or the buying club? Um, I think this is a really well-timed question from Michael Hmm. because uh, Tammy Abraham is presently, as we speak, uh, in Rome, about to sign for for Roma um, on a deal worth somewhere in the region of £40 million. But it it would appear that Chelsea have the option to buy him back in two years' time for, I think it's twice the amount that they sold him for. Um, Now, as far as I'm concerned, the... The beneficiary here is always the selling club because if Tammy Abraham rips up uh, Syria, you know, if, if he has if he's a storming season or two, um, you know, we've seen just how much it has cost Chelsea to repurchase, in effect, Romelu Lukaku, you know, a player yeah, who yeah, yeah. who they sold for yeah was twenty twenty five million to 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 Everton. Um, and they're buying him back at the age of 28, so he's got he's, he, he won't have any resale value realistically. Um, one would anticipate, um, un- unless he has a poor couple of seasons and, and uh, that they decide to move him on. So uh, yeah, they, they cost that he cost 98 million to buy back. So they've they there had all the upside risk. The the advantage of a buyback option is that it's an option. So. If uh, if Tammy Abraham is absolutely fantastic and his market value is 110 million, Chelsea can buy him back for 80. If Tammy Abraham has a poor couple of seasons, a Chelsea probably wouldn't be interested in buying him. But also they would say, well, we will choose not to exercise our option. Um, we will let him go elsewhere for you know, perhaps another 40 million. So so they are the, the major beneficiaries here. I, I know. Um, I know. Okay, my club Brighton. We we bought uh, we bought Tarek Lamptey from Chelsea for mm. I think one and a half million. Yeah, um, and he had a sensational start to the season. And he's been injured for a while, but there, again, there is talk about Chelsea having a buyback option because there was instantly a lot of interest in him uh, moving on from our club because we are a development club. You know, we know where we are in the pecking order. So it's always to the benefit of the selling club because an option is not the same as an obligation to buy back. Mm. You can say it's a well-timed question, Kieran. Chances are Michael asked it in 2019. <laughs> uh, Will Block. Now, this a lot of people picked up on, on what you had to say about this, Kieran. Uh, Will Block's the one we've chosen. Uh, Will Block says, in a recent pod, you said that hosting a World Cup or Olympics is a poison chalice to a country in the long run. Will says he had the good fortune to be at two World Cups, Germany and South Africa, and asked, would it be right to suggest that for an established football nation with an existing infrastructure, stadium travel, etc., like Germany, hosting a tournament wouldn't be a financial disaster as it could be for South Africa, who are pretty much starting the infrastructure from scratch? Will, Will's exactly right there. Um, I had the, uh, the privilege of attending both of those World Cups as well, and some of the best experiences of my life as far as I'm concerned – but uh, Will's exactly right. You know, the, uh, the, the transport infrastructure, the, the hotels are already there and the stadiums were there already. Um, so therefore, they, they didn't have to have this huge capital expenditure uh, investment. Whereas 
with South Africa, with Brazil as well, because in Brazil they uh, they built a couple of new stadiums effectively in the middle of nowhere in relatively small towns or, or cities. Um, and then now you know, matches are taking place and you know, even in, in a non-COVID environment uh, to, to, to effectively you know, three-quarters empty stadium because that, that's the level of interest in the local team. The same with Russia. You know, Russia is... Uh, Russia is slightly different because it, it's a mafiosa state and there's a lot of strange money going around in terms of construction projects. And I can say that without fear um, of uh, of any comeback from Russia because you, we've got the example of the, the Sochi Olympics, which were one of the most scandalous overspends of all time. Yeah, yeah. And um, let's be fair, Kieran, you're at the coalface, possibly laundering some of that money yourself. Who knows? <laughs> I was, yeah, I was certainly involved in, well, well no, I won't even say that. Um <laughs> Probably the best, yeah. Especially when you think about the, when you think about the country we're going to for our next question. I think we should probably keep as discreet <laughs> yes. as possible. Um, so yes, uh, I think you've got to look at the start point. Um, you know what 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 is what is the return that the country is going to get? Um, yeah, we have the uh, twenty two World FIFA World Cup taking place in Qatar, where the infrastructure cost is ridiculously large. I mean, I've, I've been across to Qatar to give a few courses and, and I've, you know, I've, you know, I've looked around the, the outskirts of a couple of the grounds and the, and the construction there is is phenomenal mm. um, for a country which is, you know, let's be honest, relatively small uh, to such an extent that they've already committed to sell two of the stadium. I think it's to Morocco and Egypt um, afterwards because they are being built literally in the same way as a Lego model. Uh, so it's they are they they can be dismantled uh, immediately following the tournament's end. Um, but from from Qatar's perspective, they feel that the the public relations benefit will outweigh the financial cost. So so that's that's a separate issue. Um, I, I've I've read many of the um, management consultant uh, see documents that are put forward to promote a, a World Cup bid. And in my experience, they they vastly overstate the benefits and understate the costs mm. of hosting a, t- a, a tournament. Mm. Uh, Rod Gray says, at the start of the first lockdown in March 2020, when all the other European leagues were shutting down, the Belarus top flight took the interesting decision uh, to play on, or possibly were told to play on by their government. Who knows? Um, Rod says, I even watched a couple of games in my desperation for live football. Having taken this approach... Is Belarusian football now in a comparatively healthier financial situation than other European leagues of a similar size? Um, it, it is in the sense that um, if, if we take a country the size of Belarus, the domestic TV deal is uh, is very, very modest indeed. So therefore, clubs in Belarus are more dependent upon the the other two arms of, of football rev- uh, revenues, which are match day and commercial. Uh, I mean, to give you a, uh, a sort of an indication, um, I, I went into UEFA's documentation and uh, I, I looked up the uh, the distributions to FC Barte, which stands for, apparently the, the Barte stands for the Borisov Automobile and Tractor Electronics Factory. Mm. And, and nothing say, says to me Soviet Russia <laughs> or Soviet, so, so, Soviet hangover than something like that. 
Um, and uh, I think you know we've we've had this discussion before that uh, in UEFA there's various pools of money, one of which is called the market pool. And the money that you get out of the market pool is linked to the amount that your broadcaster pays for the UEFA Champions League and Europa League rights and so on. Um, So uh, Chelsea made, this is the figures we got for 2019, uh, Chelsea made 22 million from the market pool and uh, FC Barte made 48,000. So you know that 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 gives you you know an extent. You know Chelsea are effectively, or rather BT, are paying fifty times more for for the TV rights than than the Belarusian TV authorities. So so it is very uh, it is very skewed towards uh, match day income, um, and that's why um, the the, uh, the the new European tournaments, the uh, uh, the uh, the Europa Conference League, could actually be quite significant for countries of, of a similar size of Belarusia because now they will be getting money, those clubs that qualify and make progress, which will be substantially more than they've earned in the past. Mm. Our penultimate question, um, remember we still have that really uh, interesting, if slightly complicated interview to come uh, about cryptocurrency, it comes from Jack Painter. Uh, and Jack says, with the discussion on EFL salary caps, would a fairer way be a rule that clubs can only increase their wage spending by a certain percentage each year, maybe even in line with inflation. Or is that a rubbish idea? Um, welcome to my world, Jack, because the, the look on Kieran's face every time I ask him a question makes me think, oh, sh- I've asked a rubbish one. This is a rubbish. So it's um, very difficult to read Kieran's face, Kieran. I, I heard him turning a few pages over while I was asking that question. So it could be that he was heading towards his, this is a rubbish idea page for his list of admonishments. I don't know. Or it could be that Finley's getting even more clever than usual. And <laughs> he's turning the spreadsheets over like somebody does for a conductor in an orchestra. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. A notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Well, well, first of all, um, as far as, you know, to say to Jack, 
I, I'm a teacher. I always say to every one of my students, there is no such thing as a rubbish question apart from the ones that you never ask, because if you never ask, you never learn. So, you know, as an educator, Jack, you, you know, keep asking the question. Uh, but I do actually think that there is, uh, I think this is an intriguing question and it certainly has, has some merit. Um, you know, if we, if we were to have a salary cap, perhaps it could be something from what he's suggesting, similar to what we have uh, with the triple lock in, in UK pensions, whereby the pay rise will be the higher of uh, increases in wages, increases in, in, in inflation or two and a half percent. It's the higher of those three. And, and that's actually something which you know, the, the government commits to quite often and is, is hugely expensive from, from an exchequer point of view. So, so that that is a route which could go down. Um, my my slight reservations are, are as follows: um, What happens when clubs are promoted and relegated? Because they automatically get a an uptick or a, a reduction in the amount of broadcast revenues that they they receive. Yeah, you know, we, we've seen you know, Norwich, Brentford, and and. Uh, Watford, you know, they're going from even with the receipt of par- parachute payments, they're getting sixty million pounds minimum. In the case of Brentford, they're going to get at least ninety. Realistically, probably somewhere in the region of one hundred and ten and extra one hundred and twenty million pounds. So, um, linking to, to, to have them have salary caps linked to inflation, I think would be harsh because it would increase the chances of an immediate relegation. Um, my, my other slight. Of reservation. Um, and, and this is something which we have discussed on looking at all of the different types of financial fair play rules that uh, are being put forwards is financial fair play to a large extent locks in the existing gaps between clubs and prevents new people coming into the industry who, who want to invest, who want to take clubs to the next tier. Um, and if you were to say that, you know, if we take a club such as Everton, who's got a wage bill of, say, you know, 160, 170 million pounds, they want to break into the top four where the wages are you know, a minimum of 270. Well, yeah, that's that's quite painful because the only way you get into the top four is if you if you pay the wages to recruit the players. And, and it is an expensive uh, and, and quite painful task. But we've seen Chelsea do it. We've seen Manchester City do it. Financial fair play, it's never been explicitly stated that this is one of the reasons behind it, but implicitly it was to stop another Manchester City or Chelsea breaking into the the elite clubs who who feel that, you know, that they, they should have the European places by right uh, rather than by winning matches. And, and, and so that's that that would be my slight reservation, but it's 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 not a daft question at all. Mm. Uh, Steve Catamol has our final question. And I have to say, Kieran, this shook me a little bit. Um, Steve Catamol says, news of a reformed Champions League in 2024 caused a lot of fan frustration. What seems to have gone under the radar, though, are Juventus chief Andre Agnelli's comments about a reform of the transfer market to a double path system where clubs qualifying for specific tiers of international competition won't be allowed to buy each other's players. In other words, the Champions League sides can poach the best players from the Europa League and downwards, secure in the knowledge that their own players can't be bought by competitors. Any thoughts from you two would be appreciated. Well, it, if this is right, Kieran, it certainly went under my radar. And uh, yeah, my thoughts, quite simply, are it's wrong. Um, 
it's it's wrong if you're a football player. If you are a football club owner who wants to make more money, it's wonderful. And, and indeed, if you if you took a look at uh, you know when when the detail of Super League came out, this was written in stone. You know, this was um, and and there were huge advantages from the perspective of the clubs because if let, let's say that you've got a player who has. Uh, you know, he's come through, he's 21, 22, he's just signed a decent contract and he signed a decent four-year contract and let's say he's on 60 grand a week. He's locked into that club for the next four years and he could be knocking in 30 goals a season, he could be you know, running rings round defences in the Champions League or in the Super League or whatever it's going to be in the knowledge that after two years, he, he can't say, well, yeah, look, uh, Juventus are willing to pay me 150 grand a week. So that means that his existing club doesn't have to give him more money. Um, so there are, there are certainly benefits to the elite clubs mm. of having such an approach because it would keep wage inflation down. Now, there's a case for saying that's a good thing, um, as far as uh, as the likes of billionaire Andrea and Yelly are concerned, um, but there are, I think, there's some th- there's some other issues which which show that you know, like most things to do with uh, a Super League and B and Yelly, it, it's not necessarily been properly thought through because um, you know from from an EU perspective. Isn't that a form of slavery that you you cannot yeah. move to a, to another one of the elite clubs in Europe? You know, if if uh, if, if, uh, if if Barcelona University come in and try to sign me up and offer me a load of money, well, I, I take it. If the uh, you know if the German version of Have I Got News for You come in for you and say, you know, Kevin, we'd like you to come and come and write uh, you know, our shows for us, you, you you'd feel that well, surely I'd be allowed to do the same. Um, so it does appear to be dealing with issues of freedom of labor, which could result in a court case and, and that could cause problems. Mm. The, the other issue is what happens if a player falls out of favor with the manager? And this happens all the time. You know, we, we saw it with uh, Deli Alley and Mourinho. Well, you know, if Mourinho was still the manager of Spurs, Deli Alley. I suspect yeah, would have yeah, moved yeah. somewhere this summer. Yeah. Um, but if, uh, uh, yeah, but if he wasn't allowed to, because let's say that Spurs were playing in the Super League, um, he'd be effectively twiddling his thumbs with the kids for the next two or three years. You know, in, uh, you know having to train with the academy team or or whatever other sort of you know, petty petty punishments you get at football clubs. Um, and also there, the club wouldn't be able to benefit because he's too good to go to a Europa League club in all probability. And there would be other clubs within Europe who would want to sign him who couldn't. So um, I, I don't think it's been thought through, but Steve's, uh, you know, yeah, well, it was it was a good spot, Steve. Um, and it, it is something which, which concerned me at the time. Oh, yeah, I, I had a long list of things which... I felt were wrong with Super League from you know in terms of concentration of power and money in the hands of few. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a fan of trickle down economics, and I think I've stated this on more than one occasion. Mm. Um, and this this was just another one of them. Uh, recently, Kieran, we've been getting an increasing number of questions containing words like Bitcoin, stablecoin, and fan token. And to be honest, Kieran, you and I are both still coming to terms with decimal. 
<laughs> so we thought we'd have a quick word with uh, cryptocurrency expert Gavin Brown. I say we, it was considered by all three of us. It was far too technical for my pay grade. So Kieran spoke to him. Gavin, welcome to the show. How are you keeping? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. That's okay. You're more than welcome. Um, the, the reason why we, why we asked you to come on the show is that we've had a few inquiries come through social media with regards to uh, the, the developments in football in, in, you know, in the last year or two, um, in, in particular uh, relating to cryptocurrency, fan tokens, uh, things like that. So you know, for, for the man in the pub, for the likes of myself and Kevin, could, could you explain to us what a cryptocurrency is? Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess in very basic terms, when most people hear the, the, the word cryptocurrency, they tend to think Bitcoin, right? That's the, certainly the, the most popular one. So cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin are what's known as a decentralized currency. And all that means is, is that rather than a single company or country or person controlling the money, it just means that a community controls the money. So if we were to think about the Great British Pound, which is the currency that we use, um, that is controlled and managed by the Bank of England, the central bank, as well as uh, sort of influence from the monetary policy from governments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas when we look at something like Bitcoin, it's not we can't really, you know, it doesn't have a head office, doesn't have a headquarters or directors or a central bank. It's a community driven project. So so very different in terms of how it operates and how it's structured. OK. And. Can can you have confidence in it if if nobody's in charge? Because yeah, I, I think you know I've, I've got a job and my boss tells me what to do, and I've, if I've got five pounds in my pocket, I know what I can buy with it. Is that the same with a cryptocurrency? Because I see the value of it going up and down all the time, and I'm thinking, well, should I get involved or shouldn't I not? Is is it a pyramid scheme or is it is it genuine? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, there are there are some cryptocurrencies out there that either are pyramid schemes and have been in the past. And, you know, much of that is born from the from the idea that, um, you know, it's, it's largely an unregulated space. And with anything that's unregulated, you're always going to get your kind of bad actors in there as well. Um, but for the likes of something, let's say, like Bitcoin, if we you know start with that as an initial conversation. Um, that that certainly isn't, you know, that that operates using a system called a blockchain, uh, and a blockchain is is really the ability. It's a, it's a type of database, really. So it's a way of recording how much money different people have got and who's sending money to whom. And you know, normally you and I would do that between each other. Probably me sending money to you, no doubt, uh, through the, the the traditional banking system. You know, yeah. HSBC to Santander or to NatWest or whatever else it might be, and that's all controlled by those banks, those central authorities. All that happens with Bitcoin is we're still moving money electronically, but we just do it by using a community-driven project or community verification. So rather than a single bank checking that transactions are true and checking that things are as they say they are, instead it's a community who are all able to work together to maintain the rigor of the system. It's all done in quite a complicated way in terms of you know, different incentive structures, but broadly speaking, that's what it is. It's a community-run bank, really. Okay, cool. Because I've seen that... Uh... For this season, um, Watford have a new shirt sponsor, and the sponsor has paid them in a cryptocurrency. So, so what can what can Watford do with that? Because you know, m- my fear is if somebody says, "Okay, I'm going to pay you three Bitcoin on for something," I say, "Fine," but I can't go down to Waitrose because you know I'm, I live in Sussex and I'm posh, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can't pay the window cleaner in cryptocurrency. So. 
it, it, am I restricted or a Watford restricted as to what they can then do? Because they, they, they can't go and sign a centre forward and say to, let's say that they're buying them from Aberdeen or from Crew or from Milan or, or Barcelona. Can, can they buy the player in cryptocurrency or do they then they have to sort of a bit like, you know, what, what I do when I go on my holidays? Do, do I have to go to the, the equivalent of, of Marks and Spencer's, uh, you know, finance house and say, well, can, can you go and exchange this for pounds? I just like the fact you mentioned crew in the same sentence as Madrid and Barcelona perfectly. They're, they're, my, my they're always, I, as, as an Alex fan, I know you'd like that. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I, I mean, there's a few choices um, from, from the position of the football club. So the first choice is that they can obviously turn that money instantly if they wanted to into uh, pound sterling. So, you know, uh, like any market, cryptocurrency markets, there are um, a constant price available. There's uh, typically... Uh, supply and demand. So if you're ever given cryptocurrency as, as a payment for a player or something else for that matter, if you're nervous about holding it, nervous about the price going up and down rapidly, first thing we can do is go and sell it and turn it into pound sterling and remove that volatility, remove that risk. And the club may already have done that for all we know. Um, the second thing they could do if they wanted to, they could feel confident in the actual currency itself and they might hold it. They might actually put it on their balance sheet. They could hold that money uh, with a view to doing something else in future, maybe turning it into pound sterling at some point in the future and or trying to spend it in whatever way they are able to. Obviously, with that, there's a risk. You know, if the price starts to fall, you know, this, this is a, a club and a company that I imagine, you know, they, they report their profits in pounds, not in cryptocurrency. So if it does start to devalue over time, that's going to hurt their their, their their kind of profit for that particular period. But equally, it could go up in value and that would be, you know, a speculative gain, you know, and who, who knows what might happen with that. Um, the final point to note is, though, like any consideration, when you're buying and selling things, you can buy and sell subject to legal restrictions and regulatory restrictions. You can buy and sell using different types of money, different currencies. So if it was possible that both counterparties, let's say buying and selling a player, agreed that cryptocurrency was the you know appropriate as a valuation mechanism and the transfer of value, then they could go ahead and do that. Obviously though it would need to be you know subject to any local rules around regulation or even any legal rules in that particular jurisdiction as well. So lots of things to think about, but you know, a few options for the club I would say. Yeah. My immediate thought is if I was trying to work out financial fair play, uh, you know, have we con- have, have we complied or not complied? And UEFA do that in in uh, Euro, and clearly here in both the EFL and the Premier League, we do it in pounds sterling. Would they would that be able to operate if we're using crypto as well, or do you just go and take the the exchange rate for crypto at the end of the year and say, well, we'll just translate it like we would translate dollars into pounds, and and there you go. Yeah, I think I think certainly the latter. So, you know, that's what we kind of know is, you know, mark to market, that idea of, you know, what's it worth as at the year end or when you're drafting the accounts, you'd change it, you know, from Bitcoin value into pound sterling or dollars or whatever your your functional, you know, your currency was that you prepared your accounts in. The only thing I would say is that um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the financial fair play rules are on this, but um, the downside with it from doing that is obviously it's an incredibly volatile asset. So it might be the case, and I know if I was writing those those rules about financial fair play, thinking about cryptocurrencies and how we would treat them, they might want to apply some kind of reduction. So you might say, okay, you know, they've got this this club has got this much Bitcoin, it's worth this much in pounds sterling, but maybe we're then going to temp, you know, sort of temper that by reducing it, applying a haircut, maybe something like twenty five percent or fifty percent. I mean, this is what happens in banks all the time. This idea of risk weighted assets. Okay, so there might be some kind of reduction there in lieu of the fact that 
yes, it's worth this much at year end, but who knows what's going to happen going forward. It's not as stable as traditional currency, maybe. Okay, fair enough. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I, I feel... I feel I feel my brain has expanded in the last five minutes. <laughs> so I really appreciate this. Um, the, the 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 other issue which has sort of really come come to our attention is the idea of fan tokens, which are being linked in, in this sort of this sort of new type of money that old men like me don't understand. So so we've seen uh, Socios arise. Uh, they are now the front of shirt sponsor for Inter, which, for, you know, for, again, for an old school fan like me that's grown up with Inter is Pirelli, and Pirelli is Inter as far as I'm concerned. But, but yeah. we've got a new sponsor there, and and, and that's going to be a lot of money you, 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 for, a, for a prime European club. So we, they clearly have got a lot of money behind them. Um, they're also involved with Leeds United. We've seen uh, Rangers Football Club. They've got an involvement. And, we, and we, are, we are seeing more and more clubs across the whole of Europe now start to get involved with this idea of fan tokens. How, how did they operate? Are they, are they connected directly to uh, these cryptocurrencies? Can their values go up or down? Or, or do you think that's independent? Yeah, it's certainly that there is certainly a connection there. Um, perhaps the most obvious connection is the the technology which sits underneath them. So normally, um, the technology would be blockchain, which, as I mentioned before, is a it's just a type of database basically. Um, so it's likely that most um, tokens, currencies, cryptocurrencies in that regard are normally supported by a blockchain type system. And blockchain is really good at dealing with. Um, uh, digital identities, okay, so verification of things, so proving that when someone says yes, I own this asset, then it's a it's a really a really uh, efficient manner of, of of reconciling who owns what and at what point in time. Now, the reason that might be quite interesting for a sort of a, a fan based token is that obviously from the club's perspective, it's it's pure money coming into the club straight away, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and therefore, not just the shirt sponsorship coming in, but any, you know, if you run a football club and you suddenly decide that you're going to uh, start to issue a token, what that allows you to do for better or for worse is effectively to monetize fan engagement. Now, obviously, if you're part of a supporters trust or similar, that monetization, you might interpret that as exploitation, especially a, a sport which arguably is much more expensive now than it, than it once was a generation or so back um, by comparative purposes. But from the perspective of the club, they might see it as actually the ability to, to widen engagement for people who wish to, to, to do more with the club in terms of interaction. They can certainly have more opportunities, and especially when you're thinking about that global audience. The idea we can now reach out to that global audience more readily because it's not just a case of coming on the day and buying your your program, and that's all all you've got to show that you actually went to watch a game. Maybe there are going to be these tokens wrapped up in experiences on match day, which make the whole thing, although slightly more expensive perhaps, but certainly make it more immersive, more interactive, and also you've got more to show for it. Although those those assets post match day might actually be digital assets of of uh, sort of certifications to prove that you were present on a particular day for a particular match. Yeah, I, I can see the logic to that because yeah, I've always argued that Manchester United constantly say in their press releases that they have 1.1 billion fans around the world, but they only generate 600 million pounds of revenue. So for so for Manchester United to make 60 pence of revenue per fan per year, 
is actually a pretty poor return. So some, yeah. so I can see the benefit in something like this because it's not just the the, the seventy six thousand who are turning up at Old Trafford on every fortnight. Now for every home match, presumably you can have a, a digital program which you can buy using your tokens, or you can vote for man of the match. So I can certainly see the benefits from the club's point of view. Presumably the likes of Socios, they'll take a commission on this, so so they'll make money. The other party involved is the fan. Is 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 the fan getting something genuine in terms of engagement, or is it ultimately a marketing ploy to extract more money from from punters? Yeah, I think. I mean, in my opinion, I think it's you know it's probably both. I mean, it will depend on the the way the different uh, schemes are structured. It may be that clubs decide to take a view where they're looking not necessarily to extract or, or you know, sort of monetize that engagement, but instead are looking more to, to give that engagement back. I mean, there'd be nothing stopping a particular club bringing in a fan token and saying that they will make zero remuneration from this and that it's purely for engagement purposes. Um, obviously, there might be a very small cost then just to cover the cost of the system itself, but you could easily imagine a club could take that view or they could take the, you know, half million or million plus every year, which is going to come with having that scheme, which, you know... Um, I guess we probably know the answer to that, given the, the kind of for-profit mentality of, of many clubs today. Um, the other problem, I guess, we've got to sort of compare and contrast with this is this idea of who has access to these tokens. Now, I know we were talking about the, the Leeds before as a, as a football club with their fan token, um, and they've got, they've got a load of concerns that, that, that they've mentioned. And, and I think I've got a lot of sympathy with many of these. Um, so the first one is is that idea of football only being for for the wealthy. So we're already in a situation where many kind of uh, parts of our society can't actually afford to go, certainly not to games regularly and maybe even at all. Uh, But the idea that the experience may become even more expensive has two parts. A, it starts to crowd out the ability of, you know, football to be the, the working person's game, men, women, and children from all parts of society. But I guess the other thing is, and you mentioned there, the idea of voting. So this notion that these fan tokens can be used for voting, it might be player of the season votes, it might be person of the match votes, you know, maybe even it's most extreme, you could make, you know, and people have even written about this, the idea of real-time voting whilst the game is happening in order to maybe affect decisions or substitutions or tactics. You know, you could take this as far as you wanted it, and I certainly don't think it would ever go that far, but it certainly could do if you wanted it to. Um, But I guess the problem with that, is that for a family or a person who's more wealthy and therefore able to engage in this sort of scheme and pay the fee to do so, they're going to have more influence over their club. And therefore, they're going to have better engagement with their club and they're going to have more say when it comes to that club. Now, whether those decisions are inconsequential decisions or really important material decisions, the divide there between the haves and the have-nots within the kind of club community, in my view, can only really widen with a scheme like this unless it's run as a kind of zero cost, you're giving back to the fans sort of policy rather than an extraction of money. Fair enough, fair enough. But from what you're saying, I can certainly see, you know, given that the the clubs in the Premier League have lost, you know, based on my figures, around about 1.2 billion in 2020, and that's going to amplify in 2021. The the championship is is a license to lose money even in a good year. Uh, yeah, if I if I was a, a marketing director, a commercial director, a financial director of a club, I'd be saying to myself, "Well, it, it's 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 free it's free money coming in. You know, we 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 can do something on the engagement side. We're not we're not going to rip off the fans." Um, 
but every single additional source of revenue for the club is we're now desperate for, and therefore we go for it. Would, is, is that is that fair? Yeah, I think I think it certainly is fair, and maybe maybe a lot of fans and a lot of season ticket holders might say, well, you know, it's not something for me, but if other people want to get involved, and that gives us more budget to, for the for the youth system or more budget to put towards an additional player then so be it. It's a welcome addition. And, and obviously some people will take that view. Um, I guess it depends, you know, what your personal position is in terms of, you know, philosophy of football and finance mixing together, uh, as well as the fortunes of yourself personally and that of your club. You know, there's many clubs where, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, 10,000, 100,000 of extra revenue a year might be the difference between survival and not survival. So it might be a very small price to pay to keep your team in in the game, so to speak. Um, I guess that it's just important to recognise that there is, you know, there are there are these kind of spin-off caveats to to sort of contextualise it. I mean, one of the things that has been raised with with some of the fan tokens is, you know, what if your tokens are available for sale as part of a what's known as an FTO, it's a fan token offering, and other supporters could come and buy your tokens. Now, you know, we saw last year, uh, you know, during COVID plenty of FA Cup um, uh, sort of uh, fixtures where we saw uh, opposing uh, fans actually purchasing shirts and doing things to try and help support the finances of lower clubs, which was a great effort, you know. Um, But we could easily see with this scenario, those kind of rival teams, you know, uh, you're a Brighton fan. So if you want, I know you're not particularly, is it Crystal Palace, normally your nemesis team? A small club called Crystal Palace, yes. (laughs) Given their full title. Um, but it could be it could be that you know if they did a, a fan token offering, you could go and purchase a whole load of tokens at Crystal Palace if it's permissible, um, and then have have significant influence over their judgment, you know, for their you know player of the match or player of the season, whoever it might be, and you could deliberately distort those results just because you want to interfere with the club. So you know there is that kind of you know I'm not, I don't think that would necessarily be a big component of it, but it is the you know there's a definite trade off to think about there in terms of who has a say and what those particular decisions might be. Um, I think as a final point, you know, you raise that idea of, you know, additional revenue. There's there's other things that can be done here. So you might have heard of a there's a particular type of token called an NFT. Yeah. Uh, yep. it, it stands for non-fungible token, but without being too techy, it gives you the the digital claim, albeit not legal rights, to a piece of music or a video clip or whatever it might be. Um and there's a lot of discussion at the moment about um effectively embedding or putting NFTs inside physical things, be they pieces of artwork or clothing. So imagine you went to purchase your uh, your Brighton uh, top for the season, the, the brand new kit. And as part of that kit, you know, there was an NFT built into it where you had the ownership, let's say, for five minutes of football in game seven of that particular season. If something significant happens in that particular moment during those five minutes of football, your shirt would be the only shirt in the world that was a a Brighton shirt official for that season with a fact, with a sort of digital claim over that particular passage of football. So you can imagine many years on, if you're a Manchester United fan, when Cantona did the collar up and he just flicked the, the ball into the top left-hand corner and looked around Old Trafford, imagine how much that particular mm. fan shirt might be worth if it had that digital token inside of it. So there's lots of ways clubs clubs could kind of continue to monetize using these ideas of tokens, not just as a fan token, but also as tokens inside clothing as well, to name but a few. That's that's absolutely brilliant. Because Brighton could very easily become the XG champions of Europe with our inability to actually score goals, but the ability <laughs> to create them. Um, and I could celebrate that particular moment. You, you've actually, I think you've converted me here, Gav. So... I really appreciate it. Well, well, I'd just like to say thank you so much for, for giving us your insight. 
Um, if, if people want to find you on social media, because you are Mr. Crypto, in fact, Professor Crypto, as far as I'm concerned, because I read all of your stuff, where, where can people find you on in the, in the wonderful world of social media? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn's probably the place where I do most of my uh, writing. Uh, so if you just search for Gavin Brown there and search for University of Liverpool, although do make sure there are two Gavin Browns at my university. So uh, make sure it's a picture of me on the profile and just request to connect there. Or alternatively, I'm on Twitter as well. You can follow me at Gavin B underscore finance. So feel free to reach out on Twitter as well. Thanks so much, Gav. Uh, good luck to the Alex and send my best to David Artel. He's a, he's a very good friend of the show, as well as being an absolutely top, top bloke as well. Oh, cheers, Karen. Take care. Thanks ever so much. Karen, I just off the back of that interview, I just want to read out some of Gavin's credentials. Credentials, even I could read his credentials, but I'd have to explain what <laughs> I'd have to explain what they were first. And that's you know, people listening to this are not interested in credentials. Um, his credentials are. Uh, he's the fintech lead at the University of Liverpool, focusing research on payment technology, specifically cryptocurrency, stablecoin pricing, uh, the future of money. He's one of the world's leading experts on cryptocurrency. And basically what he says goes, and and essentially what he says is the genie's, the genie's out of the bottle here, Kieran. This, we're, not, we're not going backwards on this one. We, we're all going to have to get used to a different way of paying for things our football club, aren't we? Um, well, I, I think it's not a different way. I think there'll be more than one way of paying things. So we, we can still pay for things, you know, using your debit card, using using sterling. Um, but uh, to, crypto is is a gamble. It's a bit like uh, it, it, it's a bit like agreeing to pay for things in euros or dollars because the exchange rate moves all the time. You're never quite sure how much it's going to cost you in terms of our money. Um, and certainly in, in relation to Gavin, you know, I've, I've known Gavin for uh, quite a few years because we were at university uh, teaching together in both Manchester and Liverpool. And, and, I, and I'm not blowing smoke up the guy's backside here. He is the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. And I remember when he first came to the university and I, I was part of the interview panel and I was just absolutely blown away. I mean, the, you know, the guy the guy is sort of one of those people when you're playing chess has, has already checkmated you when, when I'm just putting out the pieces. You know, he's, he's phenomenally clever and he's got a real understanding, but also an ability to to communicate this in, in a way which, you know, the likes of we can understand. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm sulking now, Kieran, because you said he's the cleverest person you've ever met. But <laughs> if he's checkmated you while you're putting the pieces out, that's called cheating. Kieran. That's nothing to do with being clever. That's because I, I would, I'd quite like to meet Gavin Brown because he's written a book called Spending Without Thinking, which is just like I would, I'd, I'd love to know why he didn't come to me for his research on that. He would have had a whole chapter Spending Without Thinking. Somebody's written a book about it. I need to buy that. And I, I told Ellie that. Ellie said the last thing you need is a textbook. <laughs> um, if talking spend and talking of spending without thinking, folks, he said in a seamless link. If you'd like to make a small weekly contribution to our always free to air podcast, then please do so by going to patreon.com forward slash price of football. That'd be very kind of you. And if you have any questions for our future questions pods, it's questions at price of football.com. And as ever, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire uh, to tell, well, just to say goodbye. I'm just, Thanks, I'm, Kevin. I'm just. I wanted to do a fake ending just to prove I'm not the cleverest person you've ever met. 
basically. Your friend Gavin, <laughs> he would have done that seamlessly. Gavin would have done it in Greek. He would have done it in Greek, it in Greek while juggling. <laughs> um, well, th- thank you again, folks, uh, for the, the feedback. Um, and as Gavin says, you know, for Patreon, first of all, we're never going to be charging for the show. If you, if you want to give a donation, it can be as low as a pound a month. Uh, yeah, we're grateful, um, but other than that, just just be nice to us. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to be nice to people as well. Um, so uh, in terms of how, how you can help help the show in a, in a, in a non-financial manner, uh, just click on that follow button uh, with the with the big purple um, icon. And uh, you know, I remember, I live in a non-purple world, being colorblind. Um, but if you can give us five stars and, and then just write whatever you want uh, in terms of what you think of the show, lots of people are coming up with some really funny stuff, which that keeps us entertained as well. Um, and, and other than that, thanks very much for your support, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, I'm amazed Gavin hasn't come up with a cure for colour blindness. All I'm, all I'm saying is, Kieran, why don't you marry Gavin? Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>